church, let's take our Bibles and turn to the Old Testament. Let's go to 1 Kings. We're going to be in chapter 19 this morning. 1 Kings 19 for the next month. We're going to be dealing with a series called Fear Not, How to Have Peace in an Age of Anxiety. How to have peace in an age of anxiety. If you looked up the word anxiety in the dictionary, it would say that it is an emotion characterized by inner turmoil. And that turmoil may be the fear over anticipated events, a feeling of uneasiness and worry. It is often accompanied by muscular tension. It's accompanied by restlessness by sleepless nights, by an inability to concentrate. Oftentimes, what you find is that you find individuals um, who battle anxiety often withdrawing from life. They withdraw from normal life functions. They put on a joyful face on the outside while inner turmoil captivates their mind. Anxiety can be a short-term or long-term emotion depending upon the issue. But one thing is clear. When anxiety is present, peace is not. And those of us in the house of God today know that God-fearing Christians are not immune. Christian author and counselor Paul Tripp writes the following, and I quote, Sally worries about the kids all day long while they are at school. Jed never seems to put the burden of his finances down. Linda fears that she will never get married. Sarah dreads the pain of getting old. Fred constantly worries about what the people around him are thinking about him. Benji worries that he won't make the team at school. Mary is never free from worry about her weight. Cindy has spent many sleepless nights worrying about her relationship with Brad. Jared is in, the, in, in a bit of a panic about what will happen when he graduates from college. Sarah is afraid that God doesn't love her, but she doesn't talk about it much. Ron knows he spends too much time worrying about losing his job, but he can't seem to keep his mind from going there. Pete did well while he was in seminary, but his preaching is always accompanied by anxiety. Greta worries more about what her classmates think of her than what she does about her grades. Josh worries every time he is told that the boss wants to see him, and then Paul Tripp concludes with these words, What do all these people have in common? They have two things in common. One, they are all professing believers. And two, they all struggle with anxiety, worry, and fear. And we all have stories that we could add to the list. That makes it clear in America today that we now have a new pastime. It's no longer baseball. It's anxiety. 
worry, fear. America is the most affluent society in the world, and yet at the same time, it is the most anxiety-filled society in the world. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, some 42 million Americans, over 20%, in other words, one out of every five in this place of worship, is suffering from some kind of anxiety at any given time. In fact, it accounts for 31% of all money spent on mental health care in the United States. A year ago, Barnes & Noble announced in the Wall Street Journal that the U.S. sales of books related to anxiety are up more than 25% from the previous year, leading this book chain to say, and I quote, Americans are living in an anxious nation. And it's not just anxiety books or anti-anxiety books that are flying off the shelves. There is a substantial increase in the demand for medications. Zion Market Research recently said, and I quote, the general anxiety disorder market is undergoing rapid growth and is expected to generate revenue of over $3.7 billion by the end of 2020 in the United States. Their studies show that the psychic and physical impairment tied with living with anxiety is the equivalent of living with diabetes. It's usually manageable. It is sometimes fatal. But it is always a pain to deal with. Now this is true in the country. It's true in any gathering of believers this morning all across America. It leads us to ask the question, is it possible that there might be a huge gap between the theology we just sang, Bob, and the depth of anxiety that accompanies our hearts throughout the week. Why do we worry so much? Why do so many experience sleepless nights, nervous stomachs, and restless hearts? In his book, Goliath Must Fall, Louis Giglio writes and says, anxiety is not a thing. It is a symptom of something. What is it that pushes you into a hole of anxiety, of worry, of fear? Is it a truth struggle within you? Right? We say that we trust God, but our anxiety, our worry, and our fear says we may not trust God enough. We say we trust Jesus. But our anxiety, our worry, and our fear says it's possible that Jesus is just not enough for us. Dear ones, God never intended for Christians to spend their days preoccupied with anxiety, worry, and fear. Now there are some who say that there is um, a fear not averse 
for every day of the year, that there are over 365 fear nots in the Bible. Unfortunately, that's not the case. In fact, Pastor Nathan Bohm says that in the King James Version alone, there are only 74 fear nots, only 29 be not afraids. The New American Standard Bible, which is in the front of you this morning, says there are four fear nots, 57 do not fears, and 46 do not be afraid. In fact, the word fear in all of its forms appears only 314 times in the original Greek and Hebrew. But let's keep this in mind. Fear not is an imperative from the lips of Jesus. In other words, it is a command. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 31, do not fear. I wonder if hearing it from the lips of Jesus just once is enough. When Jesus commands us to fear not, what does he want? I think we're going to find over the next month that when we meditate on Jesus Christ, when we are so full of Jesus Christ, the paralyzing effects of anxiety, worry, and fear melt away. So today we're going to learn a lesson from an Old Testament saint. We're going to take a look at the life of Elijah. So let's take a look at 1 Kings chapter 19. Right? Elijah was a prophet who lived about 60 years after King Solomon's reign ended. So Elijah was a prophet during the spiritually dark reign of King Ahab. And Elijah participated in many mighty works of God. In 1 Kings 17, he raised a boy from the dead. In 1 Kings 18, he called down fire from heaven. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, he prayed for the rain to stop. And then three and a half years later, he prayed for the rain to come and it came. In 2 Kings chapter 2, he was taken to heaven by a chariot of fire. In the New Testament, in James chapter 5, it says James was a man like us, and yet he was mightily used by God. Elijah saw sights beyond the experiences of other men. In fact, Elijah was so highly regarded that many thought he was superhuman. I mean, why do you think when Jesus asked the disciples in Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16, who do you say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Elijah. Why? Because Elijah was a bigger than life prophet of God. That's why. So the question then is, how does this great Man of God. Go from calling down fire in one chapter to hiding in fear like three verses later. How does that happen? If you go back later and look at chapter 18, you see Elijah having this stunning victory on Mount Carmel over all of the prophets of Baal. It's a great story. It's an incredible account of his faith 
and how God moved in a miraculous way. And so at the end of chapter 18, Elijah is empowered by the Holy Spirit and he runs to Jezreel and he outruns Ahab's chariot. Elijah believes his actions of chapter 18 are going to lead to a national revival. There is going to be a revolution that is going to occur. There is going to be a renewal of the hearts of men and women in Israel to God. He's convinced of it. After all, God parted the sky and fire fell from the sky showing His great power. But here's what we are told. Verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Now here's the wicked witch of the West, right? Here is Jezebel. And she has not repented. She has not been removed from office. Instead, she is seated on the throne and now she is ordering Elijah's death. And what does Elijah do in response? Now, keep in mind, this comes right on the heels of a man calling down fire from the sky to defeat 850 prophets of Baal. Right? This is a man who had called for a drought three and a half years earlier and now he prays for rain and rain comes. And this is a man by the power of the Holy Spirit who can run faster than a chariot. And now, what does he do in response? Well, let's look at verse 3. And then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. It is safe to say that Elijah's future is uncertain. Anxiety. Worry and fear have gripped his heart. And now he wants to die. What he hoped would happen did not happen. And so not only is he disappointed in the events surrounding him, he is now even disappointed in the God that sent the fire. See, he thought he knew God. He thought he knew what he could expect from God, but now he's just not sure anymore. I wonder if you have ever been there before. right? Doing what God has asked you to do, and then all of a sudden, bam, your heart is just rocked by anxiety and worry and fear. Your future seems uncertain, and you find yourself saying, what do I do? My hope has disappeared. Because that's Elijah. Elijah is sinking into a hole of despair. He sends away his servant. He goes a little farther and sits under a broom tree and he prays for death. Now from that, 
and the remaining verses of this chapter, what can we learn from God? Well, the first thing that we can learn is this. God is gentle with us when we are weak. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, He lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. He looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones, a jar of water. He ate and drank and laid down again. And the angel came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. The journey ahead of you is great. He arose and ate and drank and went to the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So what does God do when Elijah, filled with anxiety, worry, and fear, now sits down under a tree and asks for death? Well, God comes to Elijah in gentleness and in patience. He doesn't lecture him. He sends an angel to take care of him. And notice what the angel does. What you don't find here, some might suggest, you know, if you're a Monday night football fan, you know before the game starts there's always a come on man segment. Well, you don't have an angel coming up and patting him on the back. Come on, man. What's wrong with you? Pull yourself together. Or as we would say in Kentucky, cowboy up. You know, he's not doing that. He's not smiling at him real big and saying, here, read Joel Osteen's How to Have Your Best Life Now. He's not doing any of that. He touches him. He feeds him. And then he sends him to God. That's what God does. God touches us, God ministers to us, and God pulls us to Himself. Why? Because He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are dust. He doesn't crush us in our infirmities. He calls us on the phone. God is saying, turn it off. One of these days I'm going to do that and it'll be my phone and my hip, you know, going off. (laughs) Sweetheart, that's not yours, is it? Okay. Listen to me, church. Is it not true that the ultimate mark of the grace of God is His Son, Jesus Christ? Does not the Bible tell us in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is gentle with us when we are weak. He knows that we are broken, sinful, messed up people living in a broken, sinful, messed up world. And He is gentle with us when we are weak. Secondly, God speaks to us in our pain. Now I want you to notice verse 9 and pay attention to these few verses. Verse 9, He came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek to my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low voice. Do you know what Mount Horeb's other name is? It's Mount Sinai. It is the mountain of God. It is where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It is where God made a covenant with Israel. And if you go back and read that account, you see how God descended upon Mount Sinai in thunder and in earthquakes. And Elijah knew his history. He knew the stories. He knew that God was in the fire and God was in the thunder and God was in the earthquake all on the very mountain that he stands now. And yet, for Elijah, God was not in any of those things. The text says he was in a low whisper. What is that a picture of? It is a picture of intimacy. Right? When somebody pulls you close and whispers into your ear, it is an intimate encounter. God is telling Elijah and God is telling us that he works in a variety of ways that our understanding and our plans don't always line up with God's understanding and God's plans. I would confess to you today and tell you I'm an expert here. I'm an expert at letting anxiety and worry and fear kind of alter my life course. I'm an expert at allowing anxiety and worry and fear and people and circumstances to send me kind of running into a hole of anxiety and hiding out. You just close yourself off. You stop communicating. Right? You go to bed and you get up in the middle of the night and you're awake for hours on end just replaying in your mind the circumstances and the anxiety and the worry and the fear over and over and over and over again. What do we need to do? It is in those moments of anxiety that we need to listen for the soft, gentle whisper of Jesus as he said in Matthew 10, 31, Fear not, for you are valuable to me. Fear not, for you are valuable to me. Fear not. For you are valuable to me. Do you hear the gentle whisper of Jesus 
in your spirit, in your heart? Do you hear the word of God saying as it does in Psalm 34? I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Or in Isaiah where it says you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Listen to me this morning. Church, God works in ways we do not always see. You go and you read the rest of the chapter. And you will see that even after the lesson of the wind, and even after the earthquake and the fire, Elijah is still afraid. He answers God the same way. Each time, I'm alone. Your plans have failed, and now everybody wants me dead. Look at verse 9, and in verse 13, twice God asks Elijah, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you afraid of, Elijah? God's not asking him because he doesn't know. God wants Elijah to speak. What are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you afraid? And both times, in verse 10 and in verse 14, Elijah responds the same way. Elijah makes this mistake that so many of us make when we are dealing with anxiety, when we're dealing with worry, when we're afraid about the future and what may come. You see, we too think we see everything God is doing. But we don't. Your human understanding and my human understanding is not capable of understanding the depths of sovereign, holy, righteous God. The text says in verse 10 and in verse 14, as Elijah responds to God, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Well... That's true. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. Well, that's true. They did. They turned to false gods. Elijah says, they've killed your prophets with the sword. That's true. They did. And then he says, and I, only, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, wait a minute. That is false. God has 7,000 in Israel that Elijah doesn't even know about. God is going to use Elijah to anoint a new king and to anoint a new prophet. A prophet that would be even greater than him who would see angel armies surrounding him. Elijah could not see all that God is doing. And oftentimes... In the circumstances of your life and mine, particularly those that cause anxiety and worry and fear, we do not see it either. 
That God is working in bigger ways than we can see. He is working in more ways than we can imagine. God is saying to Elijah, Elijah, you feel like your efforts have failed. Elijah, you feel like I've abandoned you. Well, your efforts have not failed, Elijah. And I have not abandoned you, Elijah. How do we know that? Well, here's how we know. Take your Bibles and we'll conclude with this. Go to Matthew. Go to the New Testament. And go to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. And look at verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now stop right there. What that means is this. Elijah takes, or Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on Mount Tabor, and what he does is he kind of pulls the skin back. It's like blinds on a window or curtains on a window. And what he does then is he takes the curtains and he just pulls them out of the way. In other words, Jesus allows Peter and James and John to see him in all of his unveiled glory and righteousness and splendor. The text says his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Why Moses and Elijah? Could it be that Jesus is helping us to understand that he is the fulfillment of the law that Moses gave us? Could it be that Jesus is saying to Peter and James and John, Hey, I am the great prophet and priest and king, greater than the prophets of old. Elijah never saw the national revival that he dreamed of, that he prayed for. But God had an even greater purpose because 900 years after Elijah lived, God sent the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, the Lord Jesus himself. God allowed Elijah to see Jesus. Right? The one who would overthrow sin and death. The reason we cling to our faith when our plans come crashing down around us is one day too we will see Jesus Christ. And in those days when anxiety and fear overtake us, we remind ourselves that Jesus Christ has conquered sin. Jesus Christ has conquered death. Jesus Christ is enough for me. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Put your Bibles down. I want you to do something for me. I want you to grab something you haven't grabbed in a long time. I want you to grab a hymn book in front of you. It looks like this, by the way. <laughs> I want you to turn to page, I believe it is page 94. 
and we'll stop here. One of the things that I love to do when I'm reading and whether it's in my devotional life or even when I'm preparing a sermon, I, I love to read. I love to read the hymns. I, I love to read songs that I believe God, you know, has put in the hearts of people, whether they're old or new. I just enjoy reading them. I enjoy what you come across. And I came across this week this song. I don't know that I've ever heard it sung uh, by John Newton, by the way. And I just want you to notice a little bit of what he says. Look at verse 1. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away what? His fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole. It calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. We're down to verse 4. Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. And then the last stanza. Till then I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath and may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. It is the name of Jesus that can remove anxiety, worry, and fear. It is the name of Jesus that can see you through any circumstance of life. It is the name of Jesus that is your living hope. It is the name of Jesus that conquered death for you. And it is the name of Jesus that you cling to. In death, because one day you will open your eyes from this life into an unbroken calm and behold the one who made an end of all your sin. You struggle with anxiety, worry, fear, you just keep naming the name of Jesus.